Well, everyone has a past. For some, it is an exciting past. For some people, it might be a fairly mundane or even boring past. Some people, it might be a painful or tragic past. And then for some people, it just might be downright sinful. Now, I don't know if that goes under the category of exciting or not. It just depends on how you look at that. Now, of course, we're all sinners saved by grace. But some people have that kind of past that at times has just been downright scandalous, right? And the Bible is full of those kinds of people that have something in their past that could be considered beyond even just garden variety sinful, that it's absolutely scandalous. And today we read about one of those such people when we talk about Saul. And I'll warn you now, it is my... uh, It's hard for me to refer to him as Saul because we know him as Paul when he wrote so much of New Testament Scripture. Now, he would have told you at one point in his life that the things that he had done, he was quite proud of. He was a well-educated man sat at the feet of one of the most respected rabbis in the Jewish community. And then, full of such vigor and such zeal for the Jewish community, he essentially became uh, the deputized uh, mercenary for the Sanhedrin. And so he's going around. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And we know that he had those letters when he went off to Damascus. Letters from the Jewish ruling council that said he had the authority to round up any Jews and put them in jail. If they were so blasphemous as to think that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Son of God. But then... Something happened to Saul, right? On the way to Damascus, he gets halted abruptly. The light was bright and the voice was very clear. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he goes on into Damascus as he is instructed, now blinded, and spends days blinded. And then ultimately is baptized. Going down into that watery grave and coming up, what church? A new creation. And that instance, that moment, changes the things that we're proud of, doesn't it? Those things that we might have taken some pride in once upon a time... When we become children of God, we look back and we say, Ooh, wow. Oh, the things I have done. But we're so grateful for God's abundant and marvelous grace, aren't we, church? And so Saul was as well. 
And so we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 9 with the latter part of verse 19 to see what happened with good old Saul after his baptism. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates to kill, in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now how about that? You are a new convert. You have just said, yes, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to be baptized. And so some good servant of the Most High God baptizes you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now you've got a new perspective. Now you've got a new mission. And now they want to kill you. How many of us would keep on keeping on if that were the case? You think our numbers would thin a little bit? I hope not, but the reality is probably so. Some would say, good night, this ain't worth it. They want to kill me. All because I said Jesus is Lord. And to think about the extent, you can't enter and exit through the city gate because there they are, keeping watch. And so now you've got to go to the extent of being raised and lowered through a window. Find somebody who's got one of those houses that the, the wall of, of the exterior wall of the house happens to be part of the exterior wall of the city, right? And so and so there they are, you know, lowering and raising the guy. pretty harsh, isn't it? And why? Because he wasn't the same person that he was before he was baptized into Christ. Let's think about that for a second, church. People knew without a doubt he wasn't the same person that he was before he was baptized into Christ. Now, for those of us that were baptized at a young age, that kind of becomes challenging. To the people that I have gone to the jail and baptized back before the sickness arrived and I could do such things, you know, those, those... Times when we would go in the jail and Joe Griner and I and, and we would baptize sometimes as many I think one time we baptized seven people at one time what an awesome day that was God at work even in the local jail 
and I don't know, it's hard to keep up with them because some of them get transferred out, some of them you just don't see them again. Sometimes I run into them at Walmart, and how awesome that is. And they're excited. I've had that happen more times than I can count now. They're excited when they see me. And they say, hey, you remember me? And I'm like, boy, I sure do. Remind me of your name. And that was, a, that was you know, some cases it was a couple years ago. And they've never once been offended by that. But those people, they can turn away from their past in such a way. Their past is something that, after all, it landed them in jail. For most of us, that's not the case, is it? But we have to ask ourselves, am I living in such a way that people know that I'm a child of God? That's what most of us have to be asking ourselves. If I was baptized last week, would people be able to tell it? And so we move along in Saul's story, beginning with verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Imagine that. You want to go hang out with some children of God, and they're like, dude, get out of here. We know what you want. We know what you're all about. Talk about a scandalous past. The church people are shaking in their sandals. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, but they did what, church? They tried to kill him. Do we see a pattern here? First in Damascus, now in Jerusalem. The Jews are trying to kill the former Jew. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. It being the church. The church increased in numbers. We started looking at the book of Acts and the history of the earliest Christians the week after Easter. And if you'll remember, those, in those first five chapters of Acts, that phrase keeps coming up again and again. That they were blessed and they grew in number. Even though there are obstacles in their way, even though they have now been persecuted and scattered, they are still being encouraged by the Holy Spirit, Brother Luke tells us. And they are being strengthened and they are growing in spite of the obstacles that they are experiencing, in spite of the trials that they are 
having to deal with. And so once again, Brother Saul, is uh, he's a marked man. He debates with these Jews because, again, he's an educated guy. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Saul can speak in your tongue. This is a guy that knows Hebrew. He knows Aramaic. He knows Greek. Probably knows Syriac. This is a gifted scholar in his own right. And so he is not shying away. He is living boldly for God. Even though not one folks in one city, but now two cities, want him dead. Now, there are inconveniences to our faith. There are. We sit here with masks on and taped off pews. There are inconveniences to our faith. What are we willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Saul is willing to endure murderous threats. That's pretty impressive. But to put it in perspective, Saul had a conversion experience not like any of the rest of us. I mean, if we had been blinded by the light and and uh, baptized after a few days of blindness and then the scales fall off our eyes and now we get to see again and we literally heard the voice of Jesus call down from heaven saying, I've got a mission for you. Yeah, we were probably taking it pretty seriously too. But exciting and unique conversion experiences notwithstanding... I hope that you as children of God gathered here this morning feel like whatever inconveniences or obstacles are put in your path that you will be willing to overcome them. To keep on keeping on. To stay the course. To stay on message. All this as a result of something back earlier in chapter 9. Because the Lord is talking to this guy that's going to go baptize Saul. His name is Ananias. And he's saying, go and baptize him. And Ananias, like a lot of people, when God calls them to do something, says, oh, Lord... Uh Uh-uh. No, I've heard about that guy. Seriously? You want me to go deal with him? You want to bring him into the fold? He is a bad dude. And then God says, no, go. Because he is my chosen instrument to preach my word. He's my chosen instrument to tell the story. To the Jews, to the Gentiles, even to kings. He is my chosen instrument. And then there's this verse 16. I will show him how much he must, what church? Suffer for my name. 
one little verse. Doesn't that pack a punch? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How much, church, are we willing to suffer for his name? Some of us don't know the answer to that because we've not been tested in a significant way. But I have a feeling that for the majority of us in our lifetimes, our faith is going to be tested. The world looks at faith in a different way than it did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think the world looks at Christianity. People in our own country look at Christianity in a way that is different than 20, 30, 40 years ago. I personally don't see that changing. I think that we as Christians, I don't know that they're going to have us, you know, fed to the lions in the Colosseum anytime soon, but I think that we, little by little, over time, could see a continuing tide that makes it more and more difficult for us to be people who live out our faith in a significant and bold way. I don't say that to scare anybody. I just say I want us to be prepared. I want us to say, hey, I was told this might happen. And and let's go. Let's be people that are willing to endure whatever obstacle is in our way for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know that I am... uh, Well, before I get to that, the title of this message is The Only Thing That Counts. The Only Thing That Counts. In Galatians chapter 5, couple of lines of scripture here. It's the latter part of Galatians 5 verse 6. And Paul, that same guy they were trying to kill in Damascus and Jerusalem, now known as Paul, writing to the folks in Galatia, he says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through what church? Through, say it louder, Love, yeah. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So, if we express ourselves, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have a thought and we just hold it inside? No. If we express ourselves... That means our faith is now outward, isn't it? Faith expressing itself is faith that is visible by those who are around you. It has expressed itself in love. Now that can... There are a gazillion different ways that faith can express itself in love. It can be in small ways. It can be in a word of encouragement as we've talked about in the past. 
or it can be in bold and significant ways. Now, a guy that I appreciate who understands, I mean, bold and significant describe his life, I think. Bob Goff. Uh, Some of you have met him. Uh, Some of you have heard him speak. Uh, Some of you, uh, I know, have read his books in the past. Uh, I talked about his first book, Love Does. Uh, Sold over a million copies. And he gave all of that money, which would have been, if you sell over a million copies, it's, it's millions of dollars. It's several millions of dollars. And all that went to his foundation. As a matter of fact, the book became such a success that he changed the name of his foundation. He renamed it Love Does. And you take those two words, two little words, Love Does. Okay, that is love doing. That was this whole idea of the book. If we have love, then we're going to do something with that love. We're going to bless someone else with that love. But Bob, in his current book called Dream Big, it just came out last Tuesday, and I've got about three chapters left, and I'll be finished with it. But Bob tells the story of a guy named Don. Don is the one who said, Bob, you've got a story to tell. You need to write a book. And he's like, you're crazy. I'm not a writer. He says, oh, yeah, you are. He said, you just got to do it. And so Bob tells the story of, of how, you know, Don encouraged him. And so he wrote, Love Does. And there was a guy named Brian who knew of some of what Bob had done in Uganda and different places because that's what the foundation does. They build schools and they help people in different parts of the world. Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, Uganda, India. And so knew some of what Bob had been up to. He says, Bob, it's time for you to write another book. He says, oh no. He said, I did that once, scratched it off the list. I'm not going back and doing that again. That is a hassle, man. And Brian's like, no, Bob, you need to write another book. And so that's how we got everybody always. That's the one, if you remember, that talks about converting witch doctors in Uganda to Christianity. I mean, the powerful stories this guy tells. Giving glory to God all the while. And so, Bob is on a plane... And Bob looks over, and uh, I think it's the guy maybe in front of him, and he notices the guy in front of him is reading one of his books. And so he snaps a picture, gets out his phone, and you know, you know, we, we've all, maybe not all of us, but some of us have been there where you want to take a picture and you don't want them to know you're taking a picture, and so you kind of, oh, let's check an email and uh, click, you know. And, and so it's one of those kind of deals, you know, and so Bob takes a picture of the guy reading one of his books. And then he posts it on Instagram. Hey, there's a guy on the plane reading one of my books. And so he says immediately people start replying to the Instagram post. And saying, hey, you got to go meet the guy. Hey, you got to talk to him. And so Bob it starts having this conversation in his head. And some of us know what it's like to have a debate within our head. Should I, shouldn't I? And so he says, I was having an animated debate in my mind. Should I talk to him? Should I pass by? What if he thinks I'm a weirdo? Wait, I am a weirdo. I decided not to say anything on the airplane. 
We landed and I followed him out of the plane and into the airport terminal. After walking a while, he put his carry-ons down and started rifling through one of them. I walked up to him, debated with myself again briefly, then threw my arms up in the air. Now, Bob, I think is about 6'4", pretty big guy. He said, I throw my arms up in the air uh, and half shouted, I wrote the book you're reading. He looked at me and started shaking. He looked like he was going to have a stroke. This was not going well. I asked, a little concerned, Buddy, are you okay? He just stared at me blankly and eventually said, No! My wife gave me this stupid book to read, and it turns out it's about Jesus, which I don't get. But now you're telling me you wrote it, and you were sitting behind me on the plane. It's like God is stalking me. I told him my cell number was on the back of the book and to call me any time. We said a quick prayer together and each headed our own way. I stayed in touch with my new friend from the airport. A while later, I went back to Springfield. Springfield, Illinois is where he was headed. That's where they landed. I went back to Springfield where he got baptized. I took a genuine interest in him because he was reading a book that was written because someone took a genuine interest in me. Like this encounter at the airport, I've experienced thousands of chance intersections that helped both myself and others move from the bleachers to the field. And church... That's where many of us are. Many of us have our backsides firmly planted in the bleachers. We are spectators of the God show. We are sitting back waiting to just marvel at good things to happen. We can marvel at the sunsets. We can marvel at all kinds of things and say, oh, ain't that great? Amen. But there we are. Our hind parts. There. In the bleachers. Watching what's going on on the playing field of Christianity. And Jesus doesn't say, believe in me, does He? What does He say, church? He says, follow me. Now, if I'm just going to believe in something or someone, I can do it right here. But if I'm going to follow someone, it sounds like I'm going to have to get up and I'm going to have to start moving, right? If I'm going to follow someone, I'm going to have to move my feet. I'm going to have to go in a direction. And that's what we're being called to do, church. Now, you wonder what that looks like? Well, as Darrell, I think, mentioned during the announcements, I was talking to Holbrook out in the lobby. But, you look at the back of your church bulletin, ministry opportunity. Another ministry opportunity. And yet another ministry opportunity. And yeah, I literally had Kay put those things there. Because we've got folks that have a change in their schedule and they have worked 
very diligently in the pantry ministry. But like people before them, there have been changes in their lives and they're going to need to hand that off to somebody. Is it 11 families you've got right now? 11 families. That's an opportunity to pour Jesus into 11 families once a month. Is God calling you to take that over? Is God calling you to partner up with one or two other people and say, yes, I'm going to do the pantry ministry? Now, when one of the elders or I ask you if you can take that on, don't say, let me pray about it. Because we're already telling you now. Whether you're hearing about it here in the flesh or you're watching it on YouTube, we're telling you about it now. So go ahead and be praying about it. And nobody likes to be strung along, so if the answer is no, tell us no right away. But that is an opportunity to get on the playing field and out of the bleachers. That is an opportunity to pour Jesus into 11 families in a significant way because you are providing them a tub of food each and every month. The audio-visual team. Uh, Now that we're doing this video, in addition to just doing audio, we need two people up in the crow's nest. At some point, Children's Church is going to resume, and I suspect that Kay Cottrell is going to return to Children's Church. She says, yes, I am, preacher. And so that's going to leave, I'm not a math guy, but 2 minus 1 leaves 1, and we need at least 2. And then, of course, we all know that we can't be here 52 Sundays a year. So that means we need more people. I think I put down here that uh, two people to assist Lindsay would be ideal. Maybe even four total would be more ideal. But that is a ministry that we need. We need people up in that crow's nest to help our worship. We need people up in the crow's nest so that those who cannot be with us physically can still watch our services on YouTube. That edifies the body of Christ. Some ministries we reach out, some ministries we serve within. But Jesus says in Mark 10 that Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so, there are two ministry opportunities. And then last week, if you were here or saw it online, Tom Gosser came up. And so, you have a whole sheet of two efforts that he's involved in. World Bible School and Tom, I got the other one right, World English Institute. Okay. And so, if you know Tom, Tom is passionate about what he's involved in. And so, and so, I think I put in here, you don't have to be a biblical scholar or have a degree in English to get involved in this ministry. Amen, Tom? Yeah. So don't be intimidated by that. That this is, these are opportunities 
You wonder, what's it look like? How can my faith, Greg, express itself in love? A, B, and C, I give them to you right here. Don't just be content sitting in the bleachers. Because Jesus told a story once that the master was going to take a trip. And so he blessed one guy with a certain number of talents, another with a certain number of talents. And that one guy had one talent. And what did he do? He buried it. And then the master returned. And to the first guy he said, Hey, you've been working. You've been on the field. Good job. Well done. And to the second one he says, Hey, you made it grow. Good job. Well done. Appreciate you stepping out on the field. And that last one said, Hey, I'm paraphrasing here. All right. Hey, master. I like the view from the bleachers. Ooh, I, I, I like these seats. Club level. Yeah. Right here. And did the master say, well done? No. There was a harsh rebuke, wasn't there? So, if you want to know how to take what you hear on Sunday and apply it on Monday... Let's get off our rear ends. Let's get out of the bleachers. And let's get on to the playing field. Because that's where Jesus is. And if we're going to follow Him, that's where we need to be as well. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, the waters of baptism are available here this morning. Right here in this very building. Right here in this very room.